When I was growing up, my grandma and I loved going to the theater together. It was just one of those things that was just us. She had the season pass to the, to the theater in town, and we'd always enjoy just getting to go together. But reading plays, which I did an awful lot in high school, usually came across very much very different than seeing a performance live. And usually you would have a play, as you're reading it, you're seeing it sort of behind the scenes as far as how it's put together. It's usually subdivided into acts and scenes and, and such. If you had a three-act play that you were reading, usually had act one is kind of the conflict, act two is the resolution, and then uh, act three might be kind of from here forward, sort of epilogue-ish, if you will. And today's psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 51, is pretty clearly defined, very much like that three-act play, into those three kinds of acts. The issue is, as we're reading this, we often read it and we mourn in Act 1, and we kind of revel in Act 2, and then we go home before Act 3 even happens. And it makes us miss the most exciting part. You know, last week we were talking about uh, everybody's favorite topic in the world, sin and church discipline, and the importance, particularly, of dealing with it in community, or dealing with it communally, and the, the way that that displays love toward a person and toward a community. And John Corson, uh, one writer, says that people say, kind of out in, amongst the world, that Christians are obsessed with sin. And it's kind of true, admittedly, for good or for bad, because the Bible is obsessed with sin. The Bible deals with human history, which really consists, when you look at humanity, of one sin after another. The church gets this right. When it comes to sin or not sin, we recognize that we miss the mark. God help us, we need a Savior. And David recognized that as well as anybody, maybe even better than anybody else out there. And the Psalms drama starts with him and a lady, Bathsheba, out of 2 Samuel 11. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, just look at any tale of indiscretion in your newsfeed, wherever you may get it, and it'll give you a good enough idea of what's going on here. David, this man after God's own heart, as he is written, as he is described, steals a man's wife, gets her pregnant, ultimately has the husband killed. But it didn't stop there. As a consequence or a result of David's actions, there are many deaths that followed in the wake of his sin. All this to say that this isn't some menial sin that we're talking about here. This isn't something that's, oh, well, it's only going to hurt me kind of thing. This is big time. And it's a confrontation between David and his best friend, Nathan, that brings David face to face with this. Last week, we were talking about the idea of an intervention and a kind of calling out of, some, of a loved one. That's what Nathan is doing here, calling out his friend, saying, you know what? What you did was wrong. And we also mentioned last week that the idea of calling out sin, the idea of intervention, as Nathan is doing with David, is meant to be redemptive. It's not meant to be punitive. It's not meant to be punishing. And Nathan is the ultimate display of that concept. Thankfully, God is greater than David's failure. Thankfully, God is greater than yours and mine. So let's check out this first act 
in Psalm 51. We're going to go through the, the first five verses here. It goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. David is now a broken man. As he is he's writing this psalm after Nathan has called him out, he, the light bulb finally goes on in his head. No crown of him being king, no robe of him sitting on a throne is going to help him save face before God. You know, left to our own devices, really, we're in the same boat. So he falls on his face before God, which is a good place to start. Deal with me according to your steadfast love, God. Deal with me according to your abundant mercy. And he may have known in his head that God was merciful, but, God, but David's attitude is very balanced. He recognizes that God's character also grants him the right to pass judgment. As we saw in verse 4, when he says this, Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. He asks God to be merciful, but he doesn't take it for granted. He also knows not to pass the buck. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. That's a prerequisite for restoration, acknowledgement, not shunning it off. You know, All that David asks of God is on him. He gets it. Cleanse me. Forgive me. He doesn't say, fix my dad who didn't teach me how to have discretion. He doesn't say, Deal with the woman who tempted me by taking a bath up on the roof. You know, we're pretty good at that stuff. And honesty before God or with God is a good starting place. And from there, we get on to Acts 2, when we are restored. You see it in verses 6 through 12. They go like this. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. In brokenness, David asked God to do what only God can do. Forgive him. Make him clean. And when God forgives, all these imperatives that David asks for come to fruition. Purge me. Wash me. Let me hear joy. Blot out. Create in me. Put in me. Restore. Sustain. Recognize this. All these moves are God's, are under God's initiative. David writes all of them. In the second person, you um, purge me, you wash me, you sustain me, you restore me. See, the Holy Spirit convicted David through Nathan, and that's the start of God's work, not the end. And the purpose of the rescue comes out in Paul's writing, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, that says this, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, 
so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let's make a bit of an analogy out of this. To say, if I may, that God is in the house flipping business. You know, he doesn't look at a junked up house or a before image house and go, wow, that is a dump and just walk away. Rather, he sees the potential and he says, let's clear out the junk, let's clean it up, let's put some new life into it. And David puts some big tasks before this house flipper. So all those imperatives that I mentioned before, the idea of cleanse me, purge me, um, create in me a clean spirit. He's asking a lot, but David knows the God who is hearing him. Nathan reminds him of God's promise of forgiveness. In 2 Samuel 12, when he says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And here's where we come to Act 3. See, here's the part that we often miss out on because we hear about the forgiveness and we think that's the curtain call. Time to go home. End of show. Well, time to go, yes, but home, well, that's another story. Act 3 continues in verses 13 through 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give you a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Augustine writes that it's not this is not an example of falling into sin that is set before you, but in rising up if you have fallen. I might tweak it a little bit to say in this particular case that it is about of you being raised. Because the fact remains, we aren't raised up just to look pretty on our feet. Raised up for a purpose, for a reason that David puts out in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. It's like a beggar that has finally found food. To what end? So that they can tell other beggars where to find it. So that they can learn from the experience and be able to share the insight with others. God forgives so that God can get us back out there. So that we're not sidelined, held back, handcuffed by our own past mistakes. Hear what David says in Psalm or in uh, verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, when we get to Act 3, we not only get to go back out, but we get to respond with praise. Yeah, I mentioned in the past that there is kind of this upward spiral when it comes to faith. That we are forgiven and we offer praise, as David is saying here. And our relationship with God becomes stronger. And then, yes, the time comes again where we mess up, we sin, sin enters the picture. And we feel, because of that past experience, we feel more trusting about coming before God. And we're forgiven. And we end up 
praising, and then our relationship with God is stronger, and up and up and up it goes. All of this is possible, David recognizes, with a broken and contrite heart. He says in verse 17, The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's a heart that recognizes, like David did, that we bring nothing to the table. That all of this work, all of those imperatives that David laid out is done by God's grace. And you know what? That's okay with God. He doesn't hold, God doesn't hold that against us because it lets God have the glory in the end. But it's good for us too because it reminds us that we are working with an all-powerful God here. And whatever sin we bring before his throne, God is greater. So where does this writing serve as a Nathan in your life? Where do you need to ask forgiveness? Perhaps of God, that's always a good place to start, but perhaps of somebody else too. Let this prayer of David's, especially Acts 2 and 3, the part where we acknowledge uh, or we celebrate God's forgiveness and we get sent back out, let it remind you of God's gift that this gift of confession is a gift so that we can be restored, so we can get back to the abundant life that he came to give. May you experience that in a new way this week. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of confession, for the gift of forgiveness, and for the trust and the love that sends us back out to share your goodness and your hope with the world. Help us to do it well. And in all of it, may you receive the glory and honor and praise that you deserve. Amen.